If you've been with us, we've been uh, walking through um, the book of 1 John. This series is called Walking in the Light. How do we, as, as human beings, how do we walk with our God in intimate relationship? That's kind of the question that John examines in this epistle. Today's letter is called, the, the, or verses, or uh, we're going to call this sermon, The Last Hour. We're going to look at the second chapter, verses 18 through 27. Um, but before we do that, just real quick, if you remember the first week when we were looking at the introduction into John, we said that there's some reasons John wrote this letter, right? Why did he write it? Well, John's pretty clear on his purposes. He's a black and white guy. He tells you straight up. And so he gave us three purposes in this letter. Number one, he said, I'm writing these things to you so that our joy may be full, so that we as believers can have joy Um, that passes all understanding. Number two, he said, I write to you, dear children, so that you do not sin. He writes so that we would know how to walk in holiness, how to walk in the light with with our God. And then number three, he said, "I, I write to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. He, he wants them to know, to have what we call assurance, to know that I am saved, to know that I'm walking with God, to know that I'm going to live with him forever. And John in this epistle, he gives us three tests. He says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's what Paul said. So he gives us three tests. The first one is the doctrinal test. Do we believe rightly? The second test is the moral test. Are we living rightly? And then the third test is the social test. Are we loving rightly. And if we are loving right, if we are living right, and we are believing right, he says you can know that you know him. And today we're going to zoom in on this doctrinal test. You're going to see John is not linear. He is all over the place. And he keeps kind of spiraling around these central ideas in this epistle. And today he kind of, he kind of pivots in and, and gets a little bit deeper into this idea of, of what we believe and why that matters. So first I want to give us the context here. John says in verse 18, Dear children, the last hour is here. Now, this was 2,000 years ago when he wrote this. And he said the last hour is here. What does that imply? There's no more hours coming, right? This is it. This is the end. So we're still in that last hour. That's a long hour, right? I mean, like, have you ever, like, you're driving home from Anchorage and you passed Wildman's thinking, I didn't have to pee. And then, sure enough, now I got to go but there's really nothing but woods from here to home. And that's like the longest hour. You're like, I can do it, I can hold it, but man, it feels like that drags out, right? Well, in the same way, this, not in the same way, but, um, <laughs> oh, sorry, Lord. Um, this, this last hour has been going on for 2,000 years. The long hour. So what is John talking about? What does he mean by last hour? Well, oftentimes in scripture, last hour and last days are kind of an interchangeable idea. There are some passages that indicate um, what the characteristics of that last hour are and and help us clue in a little bit more what he's talking about. Hebrews 1, um, the author of Hebrews, says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So in these hours before this last hour, in the Old Testament times, he spoke through prophets. Okay, that's what we have in the Old Testament. But now he says, in these last days or in this last hour... He has spoken to us by his son. So one of the characteristics, and there are other passages that speak to this as well, of this last hour is that now he's speaking to us through Jesus. Jesus has come in the flesh, and now he is the primary vehicle 
between us and God. So that's clue number one. Clue number two, Acts 2.16, Peter's preaching, and he says, No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In these last days, or in this last hour, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. When Peter's writing this, this is just in light of, remember that Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost, which is the time when Jesus has just gone back up to heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and said, it's like tongues of fire, and he comes and he indwells those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the second characteristic is, is the Holy Spirit being given to indwelling in the believers at this time. So if you zoom back with me for a second, this is a picture of eternity fitting on our screen. The, the arrows to the left, God has is, is always been here. So it's God, eternity past, God, eternity future. And then we splash onto the scene at the time of creation, makes man. Here we are. Now, hundreds of years later, comes Jesus. Okay, this is what we call the first advent. Advent meaning you know, Jesus comes. So he comes down in the manger. He dies for our sins. He goes back up to heaven. The Holy Spirit comes. We're in that time right now. The other end of it is the second advent. It's when Jesus comes back. This is when he claims his bride as his own, ushers us into the kingdom, and we're going to see the eternity of eternities. Now, in this little space, and it's little because in the light of eternity, this is between Jesus' first advent and his second advent is what we would call, what John refers to here as the last hour. It's also known as the church age. This is a very specific period of time when we, the church, the church means the called out ones, and what God is doing is calling out a people for his name. We are his bride, his body. We're adding people to that body, to that bride. We want, that's the one time you do want to be gaining weight, right? Make the bride fatter, make the body fatter until he comes back. And then that's the bride. So, so this period of time that he's referring to, when John wrote this and us today, we are within this last hour. So the other characteristic that he shows here in verse 18, he says, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have already heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. He says the other characteristic of the last hour, that you know this is the last the last days, is that these antichrists are going to come. Eventually, antichrist big A is going to come. But even before that, a bunch of little antichrists, little A, I don't know if they'll be little, but they're little A, are coming. And that's how you're going to know it's the last hour. So what is he talking about here? Well, there have been many throughout history who have been obsessed with this antichrist. Who is it? Who is it going to be? And many people have thought it was, people thought it was going to be Nero back in the day. I mean, Napoleon, um, Mussolini was maybe charged, Hitler, um, uh, Gorbachev, uh, from our own country, uh, people said Ronald Reagan was going to be the Antichrist. More recently, there have been people who claim Barack Obama. Some people think Justin Bieber might be the Antichrist. <laughs> I think it's whoever installed those roundabouts in Soldatna. <laughs> That's the true Antichrist. Um, but there's been this kind of obsession with who is this? You know, we kind of look at Revelation, you know, what are the indicators, you know, who, could, who would this apply to? But it's interesting, this term, Antichrist, is actually only found, John's the only one in the Bible that uses the term Antichrist in his epistles, First and Second John. Now, it is referred to in the Old Testament in Daniel, in Revelation, in Thessalonians, called different names, the man of lawlessness, and it's 
most likely referring to the same person, John's the only one that uses this specific term. So what does he mean when he uses antichrist? What's he talking about? Well, the word anti, okay, means, you know, you know, you've known this since grade school, right? Anti means against. So when you have antiperspirant, it's, you know, fighting against your underarm sweating, right? That's what it's doing, hopefully. Um, It could also mean in the place of. And, and I think in some ways, in, in this particular context, that's a better use of the word. Now, definitely an antichrist is someone who's against Christ, but it's not always so obvious. They don't all, always appear to be directly against Christ. Oftentimes, an antichrist, what they're doing is them or their teaching is taking the place of Christ. And what John says here, to, to be more specific of what they're doing, look in verse 22 and 23, he says, who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So what he says is, who's an antichrist? It is one who denies who Jesus really is. It's one who says, Jesus is not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. And for me, that means that they're also, if they're denying his deity, they're denying who Christ really is. Because if Christ wasn't God, we've talked about it, that he couldn't have really died for us as a perfect sacrifice. And so it's it's denying the Jesus of the Bible. It's denying the Jesus who God declared Jesus to be, who he really is. Now, Now, John says, the Antichrist may not be here yet, But there are many antichrists, little a, who are here and have the exact same purpose. So what is that purpose? See, Satan, in this battle, he doesn't want us all to just start worshiping him by name. He doesn't need that. Singing praise songs to Satan instead of God. He's fine with us bowing down to what we call Jesus as long as it's not the real Jesus. In fact, the closer that our fake Jesus looks to the real Jesus, the better to him, because it's that much easier to be deceived thinking that you're worshiping the real God, the real Jesus. And he says then in verse 19, he says, they, talking about the little a, Antichrist, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So he says they started with us, they left us, they didn't come back to us. Show it shows that they ain't with us. What's he saying? Basically, the us here, I I think so, in the context, at at the very beginning of 1 John, he says we who have heard him from the beginning, who touched him, who saw him, it's a reference to the apostles, he says they were with us, not necessarily meaning that they were one of the original 12 disciples, or that they were even one of the original apostles, but he says they came from us, they were within our group, that's where they started. And and this is the reference to an apostate. An apostate is one who has abandoned the Christian faith and now stands against it. So it's an implication that they were there in the faith, or at least claimed to be in the faith, and and now they stand against it in opposition. It's one who, so these people, and this is the scary part, they started with the apostles. They taught what the apostles taught. 
They baptized like the apostles baptized. They were walking the talk and walking the walk and, and talking the talk. They looked like they were believers. But then their true colors showed, and we saw who they really were. Now John says these antichrists, they came out from us. These were deceivers from within the church. These are not, this isn't somebody running through the church doors with a pitchfork and horn saying, you know, follow me, leave the church. So this is people from within the church. And that's what makes it so scary and so tricky. So what's the conflict here? What are they trying to do? The context is these antichrists coming to take the place of Jesus. Verse 26, he says, I'm writing these things to warn you. Again, John is very straightforward in why he writes. I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. The purpose of these antichrists is not just to take the place of Jesus in themselves or in their teaching, but to lead others astray in the process. And he says, beware. Now, you might say, well, Justin, that's extreme. Like, I don't, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm not worried about leaving the church and joining some weird cult and kind of going off the deep end and getting into Satan worship. Like, I've been a believer since before you were born, son. Who are you to tell me I'm going to get led astray? You know, whatever. Well, <laughs> there are many examples in Kenai and Soldatna of places of worship that are worshiping right now that are claiming to worship Jesus, but it is not the real Jesus. And those places are full of people. It's easier than you think. And, and the dangerous thing is that they started out looking like, they, and, and many of them started out claiming to believe the truth that you and I claim. There's a man named David Legg. He, he's a, a preacher in Ireland. I love his preaching, mostly because it's in an Irish accent and everything's cooler in an Irish accent. And, and he preaches through First John. I've loved, I've really been encouraged by his, his sermons on this. And, and he was pointing out in this passage about the people in the world who have came from a Christian background added, and this is key, added new information on top of who Jesus is and then deceived many, many, many people in the process. Some of them you've heard of before. First guy, Joseph Smith, look harmless enough, came from a Presbyterian home. That's, that's a belief. I mean, Joseph Smith would have said the same verses we say. He would have believed the same things we believe, said the same things we say. But then Joseph Smith claimed to have a vision, claimed to receive new information, wrote a new book, or it was inspired according to him, and he became the founder of Mormonism, the second fastest growing religion in the world today. Hundreds of thousands of people following. And you go to the website, the Mormon website, and you read the statement of faith. And it looks a lot like they believe in, they talk a lot about Jesus. They talk a lot about him being the son of God. Talk about him being our savior. Talk about him dying for us. Talk about him shedding his blood. It looks like they believe in Jesus. And then you start to dig deeper and you start to examine. And they think he's the literal son of God, but don't claim that Jesus is God which is undermining the entire gospel. 
man named Charles Taze Russell grew up in a, as a congregationalist. Again, a, a Bible-believing church. You would have gone to the same Sunday school classes as Charles. Added new information, and this is how we got the start of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mary Baker Eddy grew up in a strict Bible-believing home. Started the Christian science movement. Do the name Christians in the title. Christ is right there. But if you read it, despite all of Tom Cruise's, you know, awesomeness, Christian science does not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And, and it goes on, Sun, Sun Myung Moon, okay, not as easy to say and not as well known. Um, he, he grew up in a Presbyterian home. He, he's from South Korea. South Korea is an area where the gospel, I mean, even today, is just booming. It's alive. It's growing and he started in a place of, of truth, but, but he went astray. And you read his doctrine. He's passed away recently, but you read their doctrine. And they are even more blatant than these other ones in denying who Jesus is. But thousands upon thousands of Koreans followed him and became this movement called the Moonies. Cool title, but way away from truth. And then finally, a man named William Irvine, who was a missionary to Ireland, um, believed the Bible... He started a cult called the Cooneyites and led many, many astray. These men and women that started in the same place that we started, then added things on top of Jesus and led thousands away into a Christless eternity, very likely. You know, and I thought about it, like, well, what about in, in my life? Have I ever experienced anything like this? And I realize we might be stepping on some toes here, um, but it's fine. Um, we speak the truth in love. And um, there's a man named Rob Bell, um, who many of you may be familiar with. He started uh, a church in Michigan called Mars Hill Church. Uh, man, it was growing. It was gangbusters. This is different than the Seattle Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll. Um, same name. And his church was growing, um, a good, solid foundation teaching, and started a lot of, um, uh, wrote a lot of books, uh, had a video series called the NUMA series. And, and in our home group at this church, just a couple years ago, we were watching this video series. Well, in, in, in the couple of years that have, have transpired, um, Rob Bell's kind of gone into some weird places. He wrote a book called Love Wins that essentially um, denies or at least seriously questions and appears to deny uh, the existence of a hell. And saying kind of this it's idea of, of what we would call universalism, that kind of just Jesus came and died and now everyone's good to go, everyone just kind of goes to heaven. And uh, he's kind of waffles on where he, exactly he stands with that. But, but then he went even farther. He, he has openly embraced homosexuality within um, the church. He's, he's been on Oprah um, talking about that pretty openly. And while he hasn't necessarily yet come out and just flat deny Jesus as the God or Jesus as Christ, as, as he twists those teachings, he's twisting the teacher. And you see how easily, this is a man who I'm, I'm watching his videos, growing and learning from his videos just a, a few years ago. Now the point here is not to cast people in black and white. And I'm not here on any campaign against Rob Bell other than to simply show us it's easier than we think to start moving off course. If a compass is a half a degree off, at the beginning it doesn't seem like much, but as it continues to head in that direction, over time you are miles and miles away from true north. And before you know it, you've moved away from the gospel. And what we do often is we fashion a Jesus of our own design. 
meaning we kind of, we don't mean to, but we, we pick and choose the things that Jesus said, the things that it means to follow him. Oh, that one's kind of weird, or that's kind of hard, and we kind of buffet-style Jesus into what we want to follow, and before you know it, we have a God that we're leading around, and it's an easy thing to fall into. So John warns them to not fall into this. So then he gives them a command in light of this, in light of the attempt of the Antichrist to lead these people astray from the truth, from, from Jesus. John gives one of his only two commands in this passage, and this is what he says in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now this word abide, it means to make your home in, to kind of settle down, to, to bunker down into a place. He says, let what you've heard from the beginning, the truth that you know about Jesus, he says, let it make its home in you. Let it settle in there and put up root, flop down on the couch and, and stay there. And, and why? why? Why is this the command? Because here's the consequence. Verse 24 if what you heard, and we ever see the word if, that's conditional clause, meaning if this, then this, but if that, then that. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide, make your home in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. John says the reason that this is so important. The reason that I'm saying this to you is because abiding in the truth, letting the truth make its home in you, is equal to making your home in, in God. And implying if you don't let the truth abide in you, then you're not abiding in God. Again, John doesn't mince words. He says, you know, that analogy we used of walking in the light. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in the darkness. You're either walking in truth or you're walking in the lie. He says there is no middle ground. There is no gray. There is no half-truth. You're here or, or you're there. And, and oftentimes he says, what's the outcome? This is the promise he's given us, eternal life. Now, now sometimes this word eternal life does simply just speak to the quantity of life, that it goes on eternally. But it can also reference a quality of life, a kind of life, Christ's life. And I think what he's saying here is you can, the only way that you can experience real life, real life in Christ, that life of eternal value, is when you're walking in the truth. If you stray from the truth, you stray from God. And like we said, if someone strays from the truth for long enough, we go, man, they don't know God. They're not born of him. Am I born of him? So you say, well, then how do I know if I know the truth or not? How, how do I remain in the truth and, and not be led astray? Well, John gives us a couple of tools here. This is kind of where we'll, we'll finish. The condition. He says, he gives us two tools. The first tool is the, the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 20, But you are not like that, like the Antichrists, for the Holy One has given you his spirit. He says, God has given us his spirit. And then in verse 27, he echoes that. But you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. He says, the first tool that we've been given to combat those who are trying to lead us astray, the schemes of the devil and these antichrists, is the Holy Spirit. And do we realize 
family. At the, at the moment of salvation, and we just talked about this earlier at Pentecost, at the moment of salvation, when you first became a believer, you were given the Spirit of God. And, and think about that for a minute. The, the God of, of the universe, who, who we cannot contain by our hands, by our mind, when we put our faith in Christ, that God came and he indwells every single one of us who believe in Jesus. It's not just a sprinkling of the Spirit, not even just a, a healthy dose of the Spirit. We have the fullness of God, Paul says, in us, signed, sealed, and delivered. He's yours. You see, there's like when a little baby's born. Okay, the baby's born, and, and it, the baby has all of its DNA, right? And, and, and a healthy baby has all of its body parts. It's not going to add a liver later on, grow an extra arm. There's some things that change, but that's not for this sermon. Um, but, but for the most part, all of its faculties are there, but what happens over time is it develops and strengthens the faculties that already are there. When a, little, when a baby is born, it's flopping around. It has no control of its muscle movement, its coordination. But over time, it develops into a mature person who can run and walk. And in the same way, when we're born again as believers, we are given the Spirit of God in us, and we have everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing else that needs to be given. We have all of Jesus in us from day one. But as little infant baby Christians, we're flopping around and we don't have control of our spiritual faculties. But as we grow in the Spirit, He strengthens our spiritual muscles and allows us to more consistently listen to the Spirit, obey the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and become, which is the goal in our lives, to look like Jesus. This is the path of discipleship. And the reason I say this to you this morning is it's not just like the preacher man that can know the truth. It's not just like you're the sheep and, and the person up here, whoever the professional Christian is, they tell you the truth and you just kind of receive it and kind of do your thing. Every single one of us have been given something far more powerful than a seminary degree, than a specific skill set, than a personality type. We have been given the person of Jesus manifested by the Spirit of God, and he lives inside of each and every one of us. And so then, what is the Spirit's job? How does that Spirit living in us help us combat being led astray from the Antichrist? Well, the second tool he gives us is the Word of God. You see, he says here in verse 20, but you are not like that, like the Antichrist, for the Holy One has given you his spirit, and all of you know the truth. That word and is a connector, because you've been given the spirit, and therefore, because you have the spirit, you know the truth. Because the spirit revealed to you the truth. He, he taught you the truth. He applied it to your heart. Verse 21, he says, so I'm writing to you, once again, straightforward. So I'm writing to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. How do we know the difference between truth and lies? The Holy Spirit inside of us illuminates it. He tells us what's right and what's wrong. And, and, and here's, here's the deal. The Holy Spirit 
symbolized by this dove. The Holy Spirit does, does not teach us something new. He teaches us something true. He does not teach us something new. He teaches us something true. We've seen the dangers already this morning of something new. And, and so often we, we want that, right? Give me the secret to life. Give me the, like the seven easy steps, the seven secret steps to like a successful life and, and what we need for like real spiritual maturity. Go past all these average Joe Christians that just know Jesus. What else do I need? Give me the insider scoop. But John says it's not like that. Verse 7 of earlier in this chapter, he said, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one I, you've had since the beginning. Love one another. This has been the call since the dawn of time. How do we do that? It's through Jesus. And he says, what you've heard from the beginning, remember the very first verse in this book? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the word of life. Jesus. See, we see very real the, the dangers of something new. We see Joseph Smith adds something new, and, and we have Mormonism. Muhammad, the prophet, comes along and says there's, there's more teaching. And Muhammad didn't even deny. He, he said Jesus was real. He walked this earth. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. But he wasn't God. He wasn't the Messiah. And we've seen, since the birth of Islam, a continual struggle on both sides. You know, they have ISIS. We have the, crusade, the crusade, cr Crusades. Nobody's imperfect, but you see all the heartache and the pain and the death and the devastation that has come from adding something new on top of what is true. And John then, in verse 27, the last verse, but you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know and what he teaches is true it's not a lie. John says, because you have the Holy Spirit, he has opened your eyes up to the truth. He who has ears, let him hear. We can understand truth because the Holy Spirit allows us to. And, and I think what he's implying here, he's not saying you don't need to be taught. Because, like, I mean, this letter that he's writing to them would contradict that very thing. I mean, he's teaching them right now. So he's not saying don't be taught. I mean, that's what we're doing here this morning. What he's saying is... is the Holy Spirit is all you need to know what is true. You don't need anyone to come along and say, no, it's Jesus, but it's also this. Or this is the real understanding. We have the Spirit of God in us, and that's all we need to know what is true and what is a lie. Remember, he's talking against the false teachers, the, the, what became Gnosticism, that, that basically said, here's this kind of secret elite, secret knowledge that, that you need. Um, and he says, no, Jesus is enough. That's all you need. And, and Henry Ironside, he said it the simplest. He said, if it's, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. We don't need to new, know a bunch of new things. We just need to know a few glorious things and be willing to live for them and be willing to die for them. You could close your eyes for me for a second. I want to kind of wrap up here. And the reason I do that, I mean, it's not, Jesus doesn't listen to us better when our eyes are closed. Um, it, it just helps us, and we're not doing an altar call this morning. Um, it just helps us focus. Because what I want to do now is just, in this last minute here, okay, we heard this this morning, but so what? Uh, what does this mean? What, what does this mean to me? Does this change my life? Does it matter? Or are we just kind of going through another Sunday morning motions again? 
what, what we have here is an issue of life and death. Eternity is on the line. And when we talk about doctrine, when we talk about what we believe, this isn't just some pie in the sky, kind of Sunday school, seminary thing, just for like spiritual nerds. What you believe determines how you live and where you live for eternity. What we believe affects everything else that we do in our lives. Jesus is not playing games. Satan is not playing games. And therefore, we ought not play games either. And so we say this morning, then, then how, because the truth is, is, is here. Satan is going to be trying to lead us astray. And the more that we follow the truth, the more he's going to try to work at us. So what do we do? How do we combat this thing? A couple questions to ask yourself this morning. Number one, are you walking in the Spirit? Are you walking in the Spirit? And what do I mean by that? When you wake up in the morning, am I, are we listening to his voice? When we face decisions in our life today and this week, it's a word you've heard, maybe a word just like this morning, or you read something, or you're told something, or you're faced with a decision. Are you walking sensitively to the Spirit's leading? To say, God, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what's a truth, and I don't know what's a lie. I don't know what's following you, and I don't know what's abandoning you. It's like walking into a dark room with a flashlight in your hand and not needing it on. That's us without the Spirit just sort of fumbling in the dark. The Spirit's our flashlight, and as we utilize Him, as we abide in Him, He illuminates our path, and He shows us what's true and what's false, what is to be embraced and what is to be left alone, what is to be walked in and what is to be walked away from. Number two, do you know the truth? Do you know the truth? You see, if, if, if your life is, is like, is traveling, the, the word of God is a road. And the Holy Spirit is the one that takes you down that road. But when there's, the road ends, the Spirit can't take you any further than that. The Spirit is handcuffed by the truth that we know. How do they know? They were told the word of God. And if we don't know, the Spirit can't grow. If we don't know, the Spirit can't grow. So what, what I ask us to ask ourselves this morning is, do we know the truth? Are we in the word? Not just do you come to church on Sunday mornings. Is that your life? Are you in the word on a daily basis? Are you memorizing it? Are you applying it to your, to your life? If not, we can't grow. The Holy Spirit can't grow us past what we know of truth. The truth will set us free. We are called to be good workmen, showing ourselves approved, being able to rightly divide the truth. And then number three, do you trust your God? Do you trust your God? Because this can be a scary thing. Life and death is on the line. Satan is after us. Our own wicked hearts are after us. And yet this is not something to be afraid of. John says in this very epistle, perfect love casts out fear. And what we're being reminded of this morning is where do we place our hope? It's not our own ability to outsmart, to figure it out intellectually, to battle it on our own strength. He will protect his bride. No one, Jesus said, will snatch them out of my Father's hands. And greater is he, and hear me on this, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do not be afraid.